Hey, everybody. What an uplifting passage right there. <laughs> Let me tell you, you're like, oh, wow, this is a weird place to be. Uh, but it's great, and we're going to tell you why it's great and deeply important for all of us. Um, but hey, Justin, it's good to see you. Uh, I'm Jason, Jason Hawkins, and I'm on staff here with RUF. And you're in a place where we believe. We believe many things, but one thing that we hold to uh, very tightly is the grace of God. And we believe that you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. That just means that God's kindness is how he relates to us. It's the only reason any of us would, uh, would be able to engage in a relationship with him. It's the only way any of us would ever be Christians is because of God's grace to us. Nothing about how good we are or anything like that. It's all by the, by the Lord's grace as he relates to us in love and grace and care. Uh, and we're going to see how that's true even in a passage that talks about blood and death and things like that. And so uh, I need the Lord's grace for this sermon. And so I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll get rolling. But would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, we, we come to you uh, recognizing our need. We come to you recognizing that there are hard things in life uh, that deserve judgment. There's evil present in our world and uh, we can't do anything. Uh, and so we need you. To judge evil, evil, we need you to bring justice, uh, and we recognize that, Lord, we are privy in that often, and so we need your grace, and we need your deliverance, and we need your love, and we need, we need you as we think about this passage. It's a deeply important passage. It's an important moment, uh, and we need your help as we consider it, and so would you lead us? Would you work uh, your spirit in our hearts that we might come to see this passage as beautiful, uh, and meaningful, and that it would draw us into greater awe of who you are and our need of you and how you fill that. So Lord, be with us this evening. Uh, we love you. We pray this in your strong name, Jesus. Amen. So we have been uh, moving through the book of Exodus this semester. We're going through a series that's titled Knowing God, and uh, we're at this the 12th chapter in Exodus, and we've been moving through, and we got to this passage that's talking about the Passover. It's a deeply important passage, uh, and as we think about this passage, it tells us the purpose of the Passover, and it also tells us kind of how to practice it and how that shapes the Israelites. And those, how, how the passage answers that is also how it answers the two questions that we try to ask every week. We ask, who is God, and how do we relate to him? And so we're going to see that uh, this passage answers those questions, saying that God is a just judge and that he's a gracious deliverer. Then we're going to see how we relate to him through the practice of keeping the Passover. Uh, and that's going to be our three main points. So if you're a note taker, if you're paying attention, it helps to structure in your mind. We're going to look at God as a just judge, as a gracious deliverer, and then at practicing the Passover. And so uh, it's important to know the context of any passage when we come to the Bible, uh, but it's, it's really important for this one. If we write it out of context, we'll be like, whoa, that's wild. And so just to give the, the story so far in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, we have the Israelites, which is God's people. Uh, God has promised to be with the Israelites, promised to use them as a blessing for the nations. And they're in Egypt, and they're growing in number 
And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is intimidated by how numerous they are. He's afraid of what might happen uh, if they kind of revolt against him. And so uh, as king, he enslaves them with hard labor. And then almost immediately after that, makes a law so that every male child that was born to the Israelites would be murdered. They'd be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. As this is happening, then the Israelites cry out. Very reasonably so. They cry out to the Lord that they're being oppressed and he hears them. And then the Lord raises up Moses. And if the main human leader, the main human figure in uh, the book of Exodus, and he says that Moses is going to lead them out of Egypt. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, the Lord says that you need to let the Israelites go and worship him. And Pharaoh rejects that. Uh, He throws off uh, God's command, rejects the Lord's authority altogether. And so uh, because he rejects God, then God brings kind of these nine plagues so far, these nine plagues that kind of grow and show judgment. And God gives Pharaoh the opportunity to turn away kind of from his evil deeds and to let the Israelites go. And then we get to this passage that talks about the 10th and final plague, uh, the plague of the, the death of the firstborn. And so that's where we get to this. And I'm going to jump into verse 12 uh, as it starts to shape kind of the purpose of the Passover. And it says, uh, for I will pass through the land of Egypt. This is the Lord speaking. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So if we were to read, read just this verse uh, without knowing the rest of the story, uh, we might be quick to say, Oh man, God is cruel. How could a loving God do this? And those questions are weighty. And, and just as a side, that's it's more than I can cover in a 25 or 30 minute sermon answering those questions. And so if, if you continue to wrestle with those questions in your heart, uh, know that I, I want to talk through that with you. Want to grab coffee, want to grab lunch and talk through this, these deep questions that matter. Uh, But just uh, for right now, just a couple of things that that we need to keep in mind as we think about this context, this passage, is that Pharaoh is evil, super evil. And what he almost immediately did in relating to the the Israelites was murder their newborn baby boys. So that's kind of the context for engaging with this. And so uh, we see that, that that's kind of Pharaoh's immediate response to the Israelites. And God's response is him kind of ramping up this judgment of the the evil deed to bring justice. So he ramps up the plagues, gives Pharaoh opportunity to to let the Israelites go. And each time he says, no, he won't. But God is patient. And we see that in, in his kind of slow anger, in his slow ramping up of judgment against Pharaoh. He's patient But God is also perfectly good, morally good, morally perfect. He's also perfectly loving. Those are two core aspects of God's character. And because he is perfectly good and perfectly loving, then he has to bring bring judgment on evil. He has to work justice. Because how could a God be loving if he has the power to stop oppression and not do that? 
So God has to bring judgment. And he's, his goodness and his love are what make him a just judge. He's all-powerful. He has ultimate authority. And he can use his goodness and his love to enact just judgments. I think in our modern context, we, we, can get, we can have a lot of objections to the idea of an ultimate judge. Uh, that's honestly what I've been wrestling most with as I've been studying this passage, preparing for this sermon, is the idea of a judge with ultimate power. Um, yeah, I've just been wrestling with that. And I think it, it comes down to a, a phrase that is often used uh, where it says absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, and I, I imagine that that would be true of me. I, I've been reading this, and as I've been wrestling with it, I think the reason I've been wrestling and been worried and kind of afraid is because uh, I would be a horrible ultimate judge. I know that unequivocally. Uh, and there's two main reasons that came to my mind. Uh, it's that I'm quick to anger over small things. And just in, as an example, some of you know uh, mine and Lauren's dog, Indy. He's, uh, honestly, he's a great dog. He's very well-trained, but there's some moments where he's just a punk. And, and I'll be like out in the backyard with him, and the majority of the time this doesn't happen. But there are sometimes somebody will walk by our fence. Maybe they'll be walking a dog. Maybe it'll just be like a kid on a tricycle. And he'll just like run straight at the fence barking. And I get so mad. I'm like, Indy, you know not to do this. I'll like, Indy, inside. I'll yell and so, like I'll grab his snout to kind of discipline him. And sometimes I'll grab it way too hard. And I'm, I like, after that happens, I'm like, oh man, I overreacted. My quick anger. And that's over something small. Like there are so many things that in my anger over small things, I would bring heavy handed unfair judgment if I was the ultimate judge. So that's on one hand. On the other hand, uh, my, my tendency is to distance myself and distract myself from real weighty measures of injustice and oppression. I've recognized that uh, in, my, in myself over the past year, especially. Maybe some of you have recognized that in your own heart as well. Where we've, uh, I've just been flooded with videos and articles about uh, brothers and sisters of color being murdered in the streets. Or, or videos and articles of immigrants and their, their families being separated and then putting, being put into cages for weeks or months. And with a thumb swipe, I'm watching basketball highlight videos. Completely unaffected. Oh man, I would be such a horrible ultimate judge because I'm quick to anger over small things and I am distanced and distracted from the weightier measures of oppression and injustice. Man, maybe some of you can resonate with those things. If, if one of us, if a human being who is fallen and broken and sinful were put in the position of ultimate judge, oh, it'd be bad news for all of us. But, but thank God that we're not. <laughs> and that's something that we can do. We can thank God for the fact that he is perfectly just, loving, gracious, merciful, and he's the judge. We can thank him that we are not and that he is. We also, uh, should, we should pray and ask him to make us more like him in those ways. 
that we would that we would pursue justice in the ways that we can pursue it and that we would trust him to bring judgment on evil whether in the moment or the the thing that that allows us as as Christians uh, maybe you're not a Christian here but there's a special thing about Christians is that we can take a step back and we can see all of the evil in the world and we can be deeply grieved but not overwhelmed because God promises that there will be a day where he will come and he will judge and defeat all evil. All evil will be paid for and justice and peace will reign. It's a beautiful thing about the Christian faith. It's something that gives me hope in the days where I'm despaired of it. And so he is the just judge who can act justly because of who he is. God is also the gracious deliverer. And we're going to see that in verse 13. If you look there with me, it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so we see something interesting. Uh, God says that the, uh, the blood will be a sign for you. He's talking to the Israelites. So the blood on the doorposts are a sign for the Israelites, not a sign for God. We see in the previous plagues, if you had uh, read them over, or if you haven't, I'll just tell you, because that's what I'm up here to do. Uh, there, there are moments in the plagues where God enacts something on the Egyptians, and he leaves uh, the Israelites free of that. So as God shows his supremacy and power over the sun god, Ra, he puts all of the Egyptians in deep darkness, and the Israelites live in the light. And there wasn't a sign to distinguish them. And so here, God gives a sign to the, to the Israelites, and it's the blood on the doorposts, that that is what he will pass over and not bring death. And this is, uh, we might ask why. And I'd like to suggest that the answer is that God's gracious and that he, he gives a good gift that it's a sign to the Israelites um, because this plague is a little different. So even though uh, the Israelites are, are God's people, that he has chosen them, that he has blessed them, that he's promised to be with them, he's made a covenant with them, and that's gracious. He has promised deliverance, and now he's given the sign. Uh, but the, the, the thing about this is that the sign is gracious, because while uh, the Israelites are his people, uh, they're not all that different from the Egyptians when all is said and done. If you follow the Israelite history, uh, there are moments where, uh, there are a lot of moments, where the Israelites oppress the poor, they neglect the orphan and the widow. Uh, and there are moments even where the Israelites offer their children as uh, sacrifices, as child sacrifice. And so the Israelites are not all that different from the Egyptians. And so this, this, this sign of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, uh, God is, is showing, he's giving the Israelites a foretaste of the truth that everyone needs protection from death and judgment and that the only protection comes from the blood of the lamb. And he shows us this is in saying that on, when the blood is on the doorposts, he will pass over and destruction won't come. Later on, he'll say that the destroyer will pass over that house, kind of as if it's not there. 
And when I read this, uh, I thought about one of my favorite series, Harry Potter. I know Justin loves it. Uh, We're in the seventh book. This isn't much of a spoiler. If you haven't read it or seen it, uh, you should. But this is a little moment in the middle of the book. It's a, a story about the Deathly Hallows. And the story is there are three brothers and they're wizards. And they come up to a raging river. And because they're wizards, they just make a bridge and cross over it. Uh, but the personified figure of death uh, comes up to them and feels cheated because this, this raging river had taken many lives that then he would claim kind of the souls of. And slyly, he congratulates them. Says, like, oh my goodness, you did such a good job. You, you crossed the treacherous river. You kind of get a prize. And the first two brothers, uh, they choose prizes that ultimately become their, their downfall relatively soon. But the third brother, uh, he says, I would like kind of an invisibility cloak that will, that will cover me from death. And so death gives him that and searches for this third brother over the course of the third brother's life. Can't find him no matter where he looks because the third brother's covered in the invisibility cloak. And so it's, it's almost like that that this blood on the doorpost covers the family inside and death and destruction can't find it, can't find that family. And so they escape. And as we think about this, uh, and we, we recognize on the one hand, God is good and he's loving. And on the other hand, judgment is necessary for the evil that exists in the world. And some of us, uh, we might be quick to think, like, oh man, I'm like, I'm pretty good. I, I don't really do bad stuff. Uh, I, could, I could live a good enough life to be free of judgment. Uh, in, in my worst moments, that's me and my pride saying those things. Uh, but in the Lord's kindness, when I'm in that state of mind, uh, he will remind me of the truly horrible things that I've done in my life. The truly horrible things I've done before I was a Christian and the horrible things I've done since then. And that's a, that's a kindness. Uh, because if I, if I think in that mindset that I'm, I'm good enough, that I can live a good enough life on my own, then, oh man, I'm going to be in for it on Judgment Day. And that reminder is, is part of what we say every week. We say that you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. That's just deeply true. Now, others of us don't have that problem about thinking we're good at all. Some of us are on the complete other side. We're just like, oh man, I'm scum of the earth. I am such a horrible person. Oh man, if that's where you're at, know that I swing from those two poles. I rarely live in the middle. I'm either, I am the best around or there's, I'm, I'm the worst person to walk this earth. And if you're in that mindset, you can, you can lose hope. You can say, oh, there's no, I deserve judgment and there's no hope for me. But if you're in that spot, I would, I would say, look at, look at how God relates with Pharaoh in this story. Over the course of the plagues, Pharaoh's evil. He is using his position of power to oppress a people group and, and murder innocent children That's who Pharaoh is. And God is kind and patient and gracious with him, giving time and time again to turn and trust in the Lord and obey his word. And if if you're in that spot, then the other half 
of the saying that we say every week is for you. So you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And that's just true. God is gracious as he delivers us uh, from death and judgment because he's loving and caring. He's the gracious deliverer. He's the just judge. We've seen those things so far. We've been focusing in on those two verses, uh, 12 and 13. And now we're going to kind of zoom back a little bit, see the rest of the passage. And we're going to see what it means to kind of practice the Passover and how it would have shaped the Israelites. And so the verse one and two, uh, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So that's a weird thing. You'd think they'd have a first month. You'd think they'd have a calendar system. And the thing is, they would have. They likely would have been following the Egyptian calendar system. But here, God is saying, this, what I'm about to do is so big that it's going to change how you relate to time. It's going to change how you relate to the year, to history. So get ready. This is the first month of the year. God's about to do something big something significant. And then he goes on and and describes this meal. And he says that you'll need to sacrifice an unblemished, a perfect lamb, a year old. And you'll take the blood from that sacrifice and put it on the doorposts of your home. You'll roast the lamb and eat it. You'll eat it with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs. And, And kind of how you'll eat it is you'll wear your belts, you'll tie up your clothing, You'll have your, your sandals on and you'll have your staff in hand, ready to go. And none of the food shall last till morning. If it does, burn it because there's not going to be any leftovers. And so uh, this meal would have shaped the Israelites. Uh, they would have, they yeah, this, this moment, the first time they had this meal, it's before God has, has done the Passover, before he has brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus, it's what the book is named after, uh, leaving them, leaving, taking them, leading them out of Egypt. Uh, it's before that has happened. And so this meal prepares them because it prepares them that the speed of this deliverance that God is going to bring is going to be fast now that judgment is fully upon Egypt. And so you've got to have your belt on. You've got to have your shoes on. You've got to eat this, the unleavened bread. There's no time for the yeast, to, for the dough to rise. You've got to eat it without the yeast. There's not going to be any leftovers because you're not going to be coming back. You've got to have your shoes on, your staff ready. You've got to be ready to go. I don't know if, you've ever, if you were ever running late as a kid in the morning, maybe before school, the bus is coming, and your parents are like, hey, you've got to get your shoes and your backpack ready to go before you start eating because the bus is going to be here. And when it comes here, you've got to go. That's kind of the pace. It's like a knock's going to be coming on the door, and you've got to be ready to go. That would have shaped the Israelites as they first had uh, this meal. But the thing is, is this wasn't a one-time thing. The Passover would have been celebrated year after year after year. And so uh, the Israelites would have looked back when they celebrated. They would have reenacted the Passover. They would have remembered the slavery that their ancestors experienced in Egypt. They would have remembered and experienced through the meal the Lord's judgment on evil and oppression and would have experienced the deliverance out of that oppression. 
the Lord, uh, he brings them out of Egypt and eventually into the promised land. And that would have been experienced through this meal, through this ritual that they would have done every single year. And the thing is, is this, the Passover, this ritual, it shaped them deeply because it shaped their understanding of who God is and who they are in respect to him. They saw God as the just judge that brought judgment on the evil and wickedness and oppression. They saw him as the gracious deliverer who heard their cries and protected them from death. And, they, and God, God's primary, how they knew him was the God of the Exodus throughout their whole history. That's how they understood their history, their past, their present, and their future. The ancient Israelites saw it in light of this moment, the Passover and the Exodus. They would have practiced this ritual over and over again for over a thousand years. And I've said the word ritual a lot. Uh, rituals relate to religion uh, in a lot of ways. And I've, I've heard the phrase, uh, kind of a lot of modern day uh, evangelicals will say, you know, it's, it's not religion, it's a relationship. Our relationship. It's a relationship with God, it's not a religion. Or uh, it's not about rituals, it's about a relationship. And I just want to say that that's a false dichotomy. Those things don't have to be opposed. In all actuality, they shouldn't be. Because uh, God knows that human beings are shaped deep, we're embodied persons. We're shaped deeply by our rituals and our habits. And while God primarily cares about the heart and how we relate to him, he also graciously gives us rituals that lead our heart into proper relating with him, into a proper posture of relating with him. And you might, you might still be like, really, Jason, isn't that just kind of in the Old Testament? Aren't rituals like super outdated? We don't really do those anymore. Uh, and if you just give me a moment to kind of walk through the history of this Passover ritual. So the Israelites would have practiced it year after year after year, for over a thousand years. And then eventually, there's a Passover uh, one night where uh, a really important guy named Jesus is celebrating the Passover, celebrating it with his disciples. And it starts off just like normal. You've got the, the sacrificed lamb, got the unleavened bread, got the bitter herbs. And Jesus is walking through the Passover ritual uh, but he takes it in a new direction that night. And he says, he grabs the bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my body. And next he takes the cup and he, he says, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Man, that would have been wild for the disciples. They and their ancestors had been shaped by the Passover ritual for thousands of years. And then something different happens. And Jesus, he enhances this Passover ritual. Uh, he, he shows that the Passover was a picture of what is most true. He says that there is going to be judgment for evil and sin. And the judgment is death and that it's deserved. And he says the only way to be safe from that death is to be protected by the blood. But instead, this time, it's not the blood of a one-year-old unblemished lamb. It's the blood of the Son of God himself. 
after Jesus enhanced this ritual, the next day he was killed on the cross. His blood was spilt. And three days later, he rose from the dead. He rose from the grave, defeating death. He had sacrificed himself for us. He is risen from the grave. Now, now Jesus' death and his resurrection become the new primary historical event. The people who had, who had trusted God had defined their history based on the Exodus, the Passover and the Exodus. And here, those who trust God, their, their primary historical event is now rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's a historical event. It's a moment in history that is true, that is shaped all of the world, all of history points to him. And now this doesn't negate the Passover and what matters in the Passover. Instead, it fulfills it. And it doesn't cancel out that ritual. Instead, it gives us a new one in the Lord's Supper. And maybe you've been to church on a Sunday morning. Maybe you haven't. But each time that the, Lord, the Lord's Supper is celebrated, it communicates that there is judgment, just judgment, and gracious deliverance. That sin and our rejection of God, just like the Pharaohs, deserve death. But Jesus acts as the Passover lamb whose blood covers all of us and that his resurrection delivers us out of death. Delivers us into fullness of life with the Lord Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And that's good news for all of us because we deserve just judgment and the Lord gives us gracious deliverance through his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we're in awe of you. Um, Lord, that you would take the punishment, the just punishment that we deserve uh, and graciously give us your righteousness and your fullness of life and a connection with you. Lord, you died the death that we deserve and you rose to give us newness of life. And Lord, we need your help. Uh, we need to, to remember your death when we think that we're good on our own. We need to see the seriousness uh, that your death shows, that it took the death of the Son of God uh, to save us. But you graciously did that. And so we're never, uh, we're never good, so good that we're beyond the need of your grace. And on the other hand, we need to re remember your resurrection and that you save us and you give us hope no matter how bad we are. And just recognizing you as Lord and Savior, uh, you remind us that we're never so bad that we're beyond the reach of your grace. We need you to remind us of that every single day. We pray this in your strong and powerful name, Jesus. Amen.